on, yeah, so we're starting a new sermon series, which is called Get Out. There's an exclamation point after that. Um, And it's a series in Exodus and Acts. Um, So the idea behind, so we're going to, each week there'll be one week a sermon on Acts, and then next week it will be paired with a sermon, sorry, one week a sermon in Exodus, then paired with a sermon on Acts. So it's going to go back and forth between Exodus and Acts. Uh, So it's going to bring together the story of the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt and the story of the disciples' expansion out into the world in Acts, the church's expansion out into the world. And this this happens in very parallel events in the two books. So in this, uh, as this happens, God's people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament discover a new political identity. Um, The Lord gets them and us out of slavery, oppression, and fear, and he also breaks us out of our worldly patterns so that we can worship him in the right way and we can testify to who he is. And so both in Exodus and Acts, we are learning how to get out. Um, And so hopefully in this uh, sermon series, all of us will uh, learn to know these books better than we have before. What What is actually in the book of Exodus? What's actually in the book of Acts? Um, we'll learn to uh, feel more fully and truly grounded in our unique political identity as the church, uh, resisting other political identities uh, because the church really is our first political identity, and uh, become more familiar with and begin to practice uh, what's often called covenant theology, uh, the idea that the covenant that God makes with the Israelites and the covenant God makes with the church are one covenant because they they both happen through uh, and in the power of Christ. So that's the plan. I'm super excited about it because Exodus uh, is certainly one of my absolute favorite books and Acts is good too. So um, so we're going to have lots of fun and um, that's what it's going to be for I think the next from now until November 26th. So it's going to be a good time. And I think someone's going to come and read the scripture now, Kelsey. Our scriptures today come from Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, and then Exodus chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." Well, I'm certainly excited about this series, too. Um, As we kind of open up this series, I want to ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you were really suffering and there seemed to be no way out of it but to just cry out to God? Like you were all out of options. You didn't have a a plan B. Your, Your only hope was to wait on God for him to rescue you. I think it's surprising how few times, when you visit other cultures, this seems to be a pretty normal experience, um, especially in, in developing countries around the world, but I think it's surprising how very few times we are in that position here in America. 
you know, most of the time we have a fallback plan, right? Most of the time we say, well, here's my course of action. If this doesn't go well or this, I can do this and I can turn to this and this and this. But there are those times, right? Where you come to the complete end of yourself where you're like, I have no other plan. I have no other option. And you just cry out to God. And then you just have to wait on him. I can tell you I've been in this spot a handful of times in my life where I was at the complete end of myself, the complete end of all my options, and I cried out to God. And then I had to do the very difficult work of waiting on him, right? And you might think, well, just waiting on God doesn't sound like work, right? It sounds like doing nothing, kind of just twiddling your thumbs. But those of you who've been in that spot, you've been in that desperate place, you know, waiting on God in the midst of your suffering is really hard work. It's really, really difficult. And while I look back now at those times, I can see how they really served to grow me in the Lord, deepen my trust in him. I can tell you, without question, I hated all those times. I still hate to think of them, right? And maybe you can resonate with that. If you've had a season like that, you probably didn't enjoy it either. I don't think any of us like waiting on God in our times of pain, oppression, and suffering. And today we see the nation of Israel, God's people, in that very spot as a whole nation, as a whole group. They're in slavery in Egypt. Their work conditions have become incredibly harsh. And they're utterly powerless to change anything. So they cry out to God. And then they have to do the hard work of waiting on him. That's what we're going to talk about today. As we kick off this series, I want to look at two big ideas about waiting on God. First of all, why we all hate to wait on God, because we do, if we're being honest. And secondly, why we can have hope while we wait on God. So why we hate it and why we can have hope while we do it. So here we go. Why we hate the work of waiting on God. Verse 23, we hate it because waiting for God takes too long. It says, during those many days... The king, of e- the king of Egypt died. See that? Many days. You know, human beings don't like waiting for things, um, especially little kids. If you have little kids or if you work in an environment with little kids, you know um, they ask a question or they ask for something, and if you don't respond to them, they just go away and they leave you alone, right? No, get ready to be asked a zillion more times because they, they're not good at waiting. They, they're terrible at it. Right? They can't wait for a minute. It, they, a minute seems like 100 years for them sometimes. And I wonder if we as adults are so much different. And hopefully we're a bit more mature about waiting, but we don't like it either. We bristle at it. It's difficult. And I'll tell you, waiting gets infinitely harder when you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you're living in oppression and waiting for that time to be over. And that's the situation in which we find the nation of Israel. According to Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, the entire time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now, of course, not all that time was bad. It started off really great. When Joseph was prime minister in Egypt, they flourished in Egypt. That's one of the reasons why they became a great nation. God's promise to Abraham was being fulfilled. They started to become numerous people. They prospered immensely. And that's why they became a threat to the Egyptians. So the Egyptians come up with this crafty plan to enslave them. And Moses himself was born into this environment of oppression and slavery. And we know that Moses was 80 years old himself when he came to tell Pharaoh to let my people go free. So how long was, how long did the slavery in Egypt last? Well, scholars disagree on exactly how long it lasted, but it's over 100 years. So isn't that crazy? 
oftentimes waiting on God takes way too long. But that's what was being asked of the people, and sometimes that's what is being asked of us and of the church as a whole, just to wait on God patiently, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty. So that's the first reason we hate the work of waiting on God. It takes too long. But secondly, we hate it because waiting on God is often painful. Look at verse 23 again. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to God for help. So there's the groanings and the cries, and perhaps you can relate with the people here. Um, Just being so miserable that all you can do is just kind of groan. All you can do is just kind of wince and and, in pain and struggle. I mean, they're being treated brutally by the Egyptians, and each day, I would imagine, is a struggle for survival. Listen to how their conditions are described in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So that's the conditions they were working in. Now, none of us are waiting on God through slavery that I know of right now. Uh, But many of us are still struggling in adverse circumstances, right? You know, some of us are waiting on God for a medical breakthrough. Just talked with our sister Olivia this past week. She's at Mayo Clinic, and she is really struggling. Her cancer has progressed, and it's really hard to wait on God when you're waiting on a medical breakthrough. There's others of us in here who have family members who are in hospice or um, late-stage cancer or have had back surgery and just not recovered. We've had a lot of those kinds of prayer requests, and it's very, very difficult to wait on God in those circumstances. You know, some of you are waiting on God in a family situation where there's just brokenness in your family and relationships are tense. It can be very difficult. Um, some of you are waiting on God in pain in your workplace. The, the conditions are not good. You're not treated well. Um, you wish you could get out of it, but you're pretty dependent on that income, and that seems to, you seem to be in a corner there. And so waiting on God is really difficult right now. And whatever it is that you're waiting on God for, I think this passage tells us it's okay to groan. It's okay to cry out. Um, Christianity is not stoicism. God's not saying, hey, you just need to keep a stiff upper lip and suck it up. That's not what God says here. Like, he listens to their groans and their cries. He hears them. It's okay to express that. God gets that. Waiting on him is often painful. And that's the second reason that we hate to wait on God. But finally, we hate to wait on God because waiting on God means a certain type of powerlessness. I mean, look, the Israelites have no plan B here. Crying out to God for rescue was all they could do. There was nothing they could do to liberate themselves. They were not the people in power. And see, friends, waiting on God, I think, is often, and crying out to him, is often the very work that God has his people doing. You know, sometimes it doesn't seem like we're doing much, but sometimes that's exactly the only thing that God has them doing. Taking matters into our own hands never works, right? Moses dabbled with that and killing the Egyptian. He brought about justice for a moment for one person. And how did that go for him? Next thing you know, he's fleeing to Midian, right? Every time in the Bible we see people, uh, God's people taking matters into their own hands, it only makes things worse. So we hate the feeling of powerlessness. We really do. But oftentimes I think that's what God is asking of us, to just sit in the powerlessness, to wait on him, 
to look to him and him alone. And I'm wondering where we've been tempted to take matters into our own hands. You know, where do we seek to get out of powerlessness by taking action rather than waiting on God? Um, And typically, American Christians, at least, have have sought power through direct political action, right? Um, We we think, hey, let's get the right person elected, and then we will have power, and, and that will work. And certainly, some people, I think, throughout history have been called to this very sort of thing right, um, to, to try to change laws that were unjust. And, and if you're called to that, great, that's awesome, whatever. But um, we never want to seek direct political action at the expense or as a substitute for waiting on God. Because then that's idolatry, right? It's like, I'm going to seek to get powerful at all costs rather than waiting on God to do what he's actually asked me to do. We don't want to short-circuit that because the very thing that God wants to happen in our waiting time is that we become utterly dependent on him and him alone, right? Like Christina was saying, we don't develop other political identities that are stronger than our political identity as God's people. Like, we're God's people. He's our king. He's our ruler. Nobody else is, is going to rescue us. He's the one that's going to rescue us. And Augustine actually points this out um, about this particular passage, that there is an alternative to waiting on God's timing, and that is taking, our, taking matters into our own hands. Of course, like I said, Moses demonstrated that when he saw his, his Hebrew brother being um, beaten, whipped horribly by an Egyptian slave master, and in a crime of passion, he kills the Egyptian, takes matters into his own hands. And... Um, Of course, that causes problems, but Augustine says this about Moses. He's actually not too hard on Moses, but he says this, the trespass, Moses' trespass, originated not in inveterate cruelty, but in a hasty zeal, a hasty zeal which admitted of correction. So Augustine says this kind of thing happens, especially when we're less mature in our faith and when we get hasty, when we get in a hurry, when we're impatient. He says, even our good desires can lead us to vice and sin, because, of course, Moses' desire was good, right? He didn't have some evil cruelty reigning in his heart. His desire was, hey, you shouldn't do that. I want justice. His desire was good, but it led him to sin because he didn't wait on the Lord. He took matters into his own hands. And I'm wondering where you've seen yourself operating this way. Where have you resisted that powerlessness that we all hate And where have you started just taking matters into your own hands? Doing stuff in your own power, which only causes things to deteriorate more. I'm wondering where we as a church have taken matters into our own hands in recent years. Where we've sought to be powerful rather than just faithful to what God has for us to do as a church. You know, obviously, uh, next year is 2024. And those of you who have been paying attention, we have another what looks to be very contentious election cycle coming. And I've really been asking myself, what are we supposed to do as Christians? You've been asking yourself that? Like, what do we do with this mess that we're in as a country? It's very, very difficult sometimes because obviously the early Christians were not trying to change Rome. They didn't live in the, in the, in the culture and the environment that we live here in, in America. They didn't have that kind of say-so, that kind of input. So certainly I think we're supposed to advocate for just laws for the oppressed. But what does it mean? And I've been wondering if maybe it means less emphasis on direct political action and more emphasis on indirect political action. Everything we do is political, you understand, as as God's people. But I don't know exactly what that looks like to wait on the Lord to say, we're not going to seek power above all things. We're going to seek God, and we're going to try to be obedient to him, whatever he asks of us 
in this day, in this time, in the culture that we live in. And the work of waiting is certainly no joke. This is going to be challenging for us, friends. But the alternative of taking matters into our own hands and jumping ahead of God, that can cause a lot of damage. So we don't like the powerlessness, but that might be exactly what God is asking of us. So there we have it. That's, we can all admit it. We don't like waiting on God. We're no different than Israel here. Um, they didn't like it. We don't like it. Probably never will. But let's move on to the second big idea, why we have hope as we wait. And this passage gives us so many important descriptors of God that just fill us with hope as we wait on him. And the first one is, verse 24, God heard their groaning. God hears their cries. So God is listening to us while we wait and groan and cry out to him. Just because we don't get the answer that we want right away does not mean that God doesn't hear us. He very much hears every word that we utter. His ear is attentive to our cries. Um, Garrett, can you bring up that photo? So when Dawson was a baby, we got him home from the hospital, and he turned pretty yellow. Uh, Can we get the lights turned down just for a second? And so right away, we had to go back in. The doctor said, oh, shoot, he's got jaundice. He's going to need to be in the hospital um, for a while. And there, Jenny and I learned, uh, we learned a new compassion for parents, especially of little, little ones who have sick kids in the hospital. It is torture on the parents. Why? Because you hear every one of their cries, and you can't do anything about it. You can't explain it to them. So here's Dawson. He's got his cool little shades on. And this is about as happy as he got right here. So we snapped a picture quick. But he was screaming. He was not a happy camper. He's got his billy lights on him. And, of course, this is, this is not extremely serious, right? It can get serious, obviously, if you neglect it. But a couple of days, and he's fine. It's nothing um, life-threatening or anything like that. But we couldn't tell him that. And he didn't like it. He was sitting there like, what is going on? Why isn't my mom holding me? You know what? I, I don't want to be in here. Why do they put these weird sunglasses on me? And, and he just, everything is weird and strange. And I thought, man, that must be how God feels about us. You know, he sees things that we don't see, and we're crying out to him. Does that mean when he doesn't do anything that he's not listening? No, on the contrary. He hears us just like we heard Dawson's cries. I don't think Jenny and I slept a wink for two or three days. Because we heard every single one of his cries. Do you know that's how God hears you? Do you know that's how God hears our cries as a church? You can turn the lights back up. Thanks, Dad. He hears every single one of them, and that's the first reason we have hope in the waiting. Because God hears us. We can have confidence in that. But secondly, we have hope in the waiting because, look at verse 24. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Okay, so first of all, what is a covenant? Well, covenant is an agreement that is legal and binding, but it's also deeply intimate and relational. It's a solemn agreement that you're going to uphold your end of the bargain no matter what, right? So think of the marriage covenant. You promise to love in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, um, in good times and in bad, right? All those kinds of things. Um, Think about the relationship between a parent and a child. Parents, you don't just give up on your kids because they don't treat you right, right? One day. Um, if that happened, none of us would have parents anymore, right? We, we, we wouldn't make it. Um, so that's a covenantal relationship. It endures through those times where you're not exactly happy with each other. And according to Pastor Tim Keller, Tim, by the way, passed away on Friday. Please be praying for his wife, Kathy, and their family. Tim's been a mentor of mine, just a, uh, 
a fantastic father in the faith, but he says this about covenant. He says, the covenant is a stunning blend of law and love. Stunning because it's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it's legal. It is this way through voluntary, mutual, binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful, no matter what the circumstances are. So that's a covenant. It says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be here. No matter what you do, I'm going to keep my promises, right? So God says, I'm going to keep my covenant. I, I remember my covenant. Now, when we hear the word remembered, what do we think of? Well, we think of something that we forgot, right? Oh, I forgot that, but now just popped into my mind. I remembered it. Well, that's not the way that the word remembered is used here in this text with God, um, right? After all, he's not saying, oh, yeah, I did make a covenant with Abraham, didn't I? And I forgot about that. And so, yeah, I'm remembering that now. Um, and I, I'm going to do that. I, I almost forgot about that, but I'm, I'm remembering it now. No, remembering here actually means to be constantly mindful of it. It means he keeps it at the front of his mind. He never forgets about it. He never loses sight of it. It's kind of like, you know, your marriage vows, those of you who are married. And chances are, I don't think anybody wakes up and says, okay, what were my, my vows again this morning? Uh, love, honor, and cherish, to be faithful to you, forsaking all others, in sickness and health. You don't review your marriage vows every day, but you remember that you made them, right? You better. You better not forget them, right? So you're not like out and about and you meet someone attractive and you say, hey, let's go out on Friday night. And then you're like, oh crap, I'm married. I shouldn't be doing this. You don't forget that you made marriage vows, right? You live with those vows at the front of your brain all the time. Now, that's the way God does. That's the way God acts when it comes to his covenant promises with his people. He lives in constant remembrance of them all the time. Specifically, we see God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. According to, this is what Genesis 12, 1 through 2 says. This is the covenant. This is the promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the, pro the promise that God made to Abraham that he intends on seeing through, that he intends on keeping it. And you understand, all of us sitting here are a direct result of this covenant promise, right? That God would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. Well, that's Jesus. Through Jesus, God blessed all the families of the earth. And now you and I and all the Christians, a couple billion of us around the earth, are part of, God's, or a part of Abraham's massive multi-ethnic family. God kept his covenant promise. So that's the second reason we have hope in the waiting. God always remembers his covenant. He never forgets it. He always keeps it in front of him. But thirdly, we have hope in the waiting because God saw his people. You know, and the Hebrew word here, again, has a pretty broad semantic range. It means to, to see, to consider, to give attention to. And in this way, it really reminds us when we read the Gospels and Jesus saw people right? Nobody, nobody who's ever lived saw people like Jesus could see people, right? Jesus saw Zacchaeus. He saw the lepers. He saw the woman with the issue of blood, which doesn't mean he just like, yeah, I can see them. They're right in front of me. No, he, he paid attention to their needs. He took notice of them when other people passed them by. He considered their needs important. Well, that's what this Hebrew word means. It means God saw them. He was attentive to their cries and noticed what was going on in their lives. And the same is true with us, 
No matter what you're going through right now, no matter what struggle you're in the midst of, God sees you. God is attentive to your cries. He's attentive to your issues. It doesn't, it's not lost on him. And therefore, we wait with hope. That's the third reason we have hope in the waiting. God sees us. And fourthly, we wait with hope because God knew. God knew. I love how this, that little section ends. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And that, really, that word really means he had an intimate knowledge of their issues. The Hebrew verb here used is yada, and it's a word of intimacy. It means to know experientially. And the truth is that God did know what his people were going through. He gets them. He understands the aching um, in their heart. And isn't this an immense comfort in your times of difficult waiting that God knows you? That he really knows you, that he really gets you, that he's familiar with you and understands what you're going through. I think sometimes the worst part of a really difficult season of suffering is you just feel like nobody understands. Anybody ever felt like that? Nobody understands my situation. Sure, you have friends who are empathetic, who are like, oh, I'm so sorry. But your pain is your pain. Nobody really gets it, right? And you know that. I think instinctive, we know, like, you're one of one person. There's nobody else like you in all the world. You're, you're unique. There's nobody else like you. And you don't even really know yourself perfectly. I mean, there's things that we hide from ourselves in our psyche, deep within our psyche. So isn't it comforting to know that the only person that really knows you is the person that made you as God? He really, really knows you. He knows everything about you, even the things deep in the recesses of your psyche that you hide from yourself. God knows. He gets you. He already knew. I love that about this passage. You know, just recently, Jenny and I, we're told by our insurance company that they were no longer going to pay for us to see the Christian counselor that we've gone to since premarital counseling. And I'm like, oh, come on, this insurance thing is just, it's such a drag. Um, because we had switched insurance companies a few years ago, they were doing just fine, and now they just are totally falling off the wagon. So we had to write this appeal, and we said, look, we've been seeing this guy for 16 years. Do you want to look at all the case notes I mean, we don't go to him a lot, but over the years, you run into a lot of different things in your marriage and with kids and with all sorts of things that you, that you deal with, and he knows all of that stuff. We don't have to go in to somebody new and say, well, let's start back in 2007 and just drag through all of that stuff. He knows us. He gets it. So it's really comforting to go in and sit down and talk to him. And we had to kind of argue with the insurance company, like, hey, can we please keep seeing this guy that already knows us? Because... We probably won't go to somebody else that doesn't know us anymore. It's just too much work. How comforting is that that God already knows you? You don't have to explain anything. He's like, I know. I already know. I've seen it. I know it. That's the fourth thing that we find uh, super hopeful about waiting on God is that he knows. But finally, we're hopeful as we wait on God because God acts. Look at the second passage that Kelsey read for you in chapter 3 of Exodus, verses 9 and 10. God's talking to Moses, and he says, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So he's repeating again. He's like, I see it. I know it. And then he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God acts. God acts. You know, it's one thing to have a God who sees and who knows who understands, who keeps his promises. But perhaps the best part, 
perhaps the most hopeful part of waiting on our God is that he's a God who acts on our behalf in our best interests, right? Remember that Romans 8 says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes, right? We can hear and feel even in the beginning of chapter 2 here that God has already begun raising up a deliverer for the people of Israel, right? God protected baby Moses in the basket in the midst of the genocide that Pharaoh had commanded. He's like, kill all the baby boys. Well, God protected Moses. He's like, that's my deliverer. I've already got my hand on him, right? This was 80 years before Moses would actually go into and say, let my people go. God was working behind the scenes. In the midst of Moses' error when he killed the Egyptian, then Pharaoh said, all right, I'm going to kill Moses. Well, God protected him. He swept him off to Midian, kept him there for a while, raised him up, hid him away until he was ready for this task. See, friends, behind the scenes, we see a God who is acting on behalf of his people, and this has to give us hope while we wait on God in the midst of whatever difficult circumstance you're in. And if we ever needed evidence that God hears our cries, hears our cries, that he remembers his covenant with us, that he sees us, that he knows us, and that he acts on our behalf, we need only look where? To Jesus. We need only look to our Jesus. I mean, he is evidence of God's ultimate action in our lives for good. Jesus is the deliverer that God raised up. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the one who leads us out of our sin and our slavery, out of our bondage to Satan. And Jesus is the one who has defeated our greatest enemy, death. And he's the one that now offers us eternal life. That's why Christians can confidently and hopefully wait on God in times of oppression and suffering. We know our God hears us and sees us and acts on our behalf because Jesus is proof of that, right? But this is also why the church as a whole waits on God in times of our oppression and suffering because we've seen him deliver us before. Like he took care of all the big stuff. He got us out of sin and death. Surely he can take care of the little details, right? For those of you who are here today who aren't Christians, we want to just invite you to put your trust in this Jesus this deliverer that God raised up. He died and rose again so that he, he can lead you out of your sin, out of your slavery, out of your death, even out of your self-inflicted pharaohs. We all have those things, right, that we become addicted to, that we become enslaved to. And Jesus says, I can lead you out of that. I can break those chains too. You can break the chains of death. There's nothing stopping him from breaking those things in your life. There's gonna be people up here to pray with you. We would invite you to come today to Jesus and for the rest of us, I'm just wondering, what does it mean for us as a church, as we do some of this vision work today, what does it mean for us to be a church that waits on God in the midst of our struggling, in the midst of oppression? What does it mean for us to look to him and him alone to get us out, right? Um, certainly, I think it means us assessing our impatient attempts to take matters into our own hands. We got to look at that stuff, guys. We got to look at where are we, where are we getting impatient, moving ahead of God and saying, oh, we'll do, we'll take it from here, God. But additionally, I think it means owning our weakness and being able to, being willing to do whatever he asks us to do, including if that means he asks us to wait on him. Because waiting is work, remember that. It's real work that if God asks us to wait on him, we wait. Finally, I think it means as a church, we wait in a specific way. We wait filled with hope and faith because we have a God who hears our cries. We have a God who remembers his covenant. We have a God who sees us, 
We have a God who acts on our behalf. That's the God that we wait on. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who sees us. You're a God who hears us and is attentive to our cries. You're a God who always, always keeps his promises. You're a God who knows. You're a God who is acting behind the scenes always, even when we can't see it, even, if, even when we can't tell it or feel it. You're working. Now help us to be patient when we don't see it. It's easy to preach this. It's way, way harder to live. Help us to be patient and to wait on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.